she gave was how um, pastors need to take courage um, when it snows and no one shows up. <laughs> Yesterday, I was listening to this sermon. So I was like, wow, okay, I guess, um, I guess that could be cause for discouragement for a pastor. But, um, but yeah, and he was just saying, like, just remember that, you know, one, even if three people are there, one of those people could be like the next Billy Graham. So just take hope and preach. So here we go. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Um, our anniversary is January 20, well, our anniversary party is January 22nd. So that's going to be our second year anniversary. We've been doing this for about two years now. Um, the church has been doing this for about 2,016 years, though. So let's not forget that. We, we just give glory to God that he's, um, he's given us um, the expression of a local church and a gospel witness to people around us. So we just want to celebrate that. It's going to be a potluck. It'll be right here. And we're just going to be talking about some cool things with regard to vision. Um, so hopefully it doesn't snow and everyone comes. But God bless you. Thanks for being with us this morning. There's a, um, t- today's sermon is really about mission. And, uh, you know, 2017 is upon us, and just kind of reflecting on what's, what's the vision of my life, and not just this church, but my life. Why do I live my life as a Christian? Does my Christianity o- almost kind of the most important thing to me? Is it rise to surface? And I can't help but talk about mission in, in answering that question. Because if God has called, uh, called you to his, to, to his heavenly home, to his kingdom, he's called you to be a missionary. Now, I know that, that, I, that might be different language than what you're used to, because we, we think of missionaries as people who go overseas and, you know, visit foreign lands. But the reality is God has called all of us to have a vision for our neighbor, for our family, um, to have the gospel on our lips to them. So this is really a, a message about mission. And there's a principle normally taught in methods of evangelism in foreign and domestic missions that really applies to Jesus' instructions in Luke chapter 10, if you recall this, it's a core duty of the missionary, and that's to find the person of peace. How many people have ever heard of this expression before? As missionaries, when we go into a town, right, um, and we're trying to um, get the gospel established in that town and get people to believe in Jesus Christ, one of the objectives as missionaries is to find a person of peace. Um, Jesus describes this in Luke chapter 10. He says, The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Go. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And here here comes the person of peace concept. So he's telling missionaries, go into, into the village, into the towns, and just start going from house to house. When you enter the house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking. When you enter a town and are welcomed by that town, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, say, even the dust of your town we wipe from your feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. So here's this person of peace concept. Let me just describe it to you by definition. And this is textbook definition. In the person of peace approach, Missionaries who are seeking to reach a people group in any town or any place with the gospel search for a person or a family that is welcoming and spiritually open. You see? They're going to they're gonna welcome you. They're not hostile. They don't give you a hard time. They're listening to what you're saying. Not only that, these people are also willing to gather friends and family to hear, too, the gospel of Jesus Christ and to share it with others. You see, this is the person of peace concept. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, 
if we're missionaries, we have to have this concept on our hearts and minds and in our prayers. Who is our person of peace? As we come into Warren, we've been here about a year and a half now, who is our person of peace? And it's something that we need to pray for and ask for and ask God to make clear to us. So as Christians, we need to do this, not just as churches, but even as individuals. Who's the person of peace in your family? Who's the person of peace at your work? Right? Do you have a notebook? Are you writing their names down? Do you see what I mean by intention and vision? To be a good missionary, to, to work for Jesus Christ. So as I reflect on our church and our vision for 2017, it's, it's my great desire that we all be active missionaries. That we don't just gather and enjoy the word of God, which is what we need to do and should strive to do, but we, we all be active missionaries as well. And the book of Acts is all about this. And what we have here in, in Acts chapter 28, the very last chapter of Acts, is a perfect example of this kind of fleshing itself out in real life, the person of peace concept, concept and the fruit of it. The church being formed and driven to the ends of the earth is our mission, our gospel mission. And if we're going to dare to live on gospel, gospel mission, it's vital for us to all consider who our person of peace is. To have a vision and to start going after people, right? This morning I want to examine what's the normal cycle of this person of peace concept. We see it right here in Acts 28. How do we find a person of peace? That's what we should talk about here. It includes bold pursuits, bold, uh, paradigm shifts, selfless compassion, and transformation. Those are the four things, the cycle of it that we see. Bold pursuits, paradigm shifts, selfless compassion, and transformation. So number one, bold pursuits. So let's just be a little bit mindful of where we are in the narrative of Acts chapter 28. We're at the very end of the book, and some pretty um, difficult trials have come across the Apostle Paul's life. Paul the other prisoners and shipmates had just been through 14 horrific days at sea. You guys remember this? And they, the, even the experienced sailors were hopeless. They thought they were all going to die. They had tried everything, and the ship was falling apart. But because of the promise of God, this was last week's sermon, because of the promise of God and the trust Paul had in God's every promise, every single passenger on board lived. The passengers, basically, the ship's starting to fall apart, it's time to go. They see a beach. It's time to jump the ship, and they start swimming, okay? Um, they basically swim um, from the sinking ship to the beaches of Malta, okay? That's where we... Um, so so Mal Malta, basically, is an, a little island, and I was reading one commentary, and the fact that it, it got marooned on this island was a miracle because of, of the island's size and where it was. It's in the middle of Sicily. It's south of Sicily and north of Africa. If you know where Sicily is, it's right below Italy. Okay, if you have that vision of the map in your mind. So it's in between Sicily and Africa, okay? In the middle of nowhere in the Mediterranean Sea. And they just happen to fall upon it. <clears throat> you, re you recall, we've mentioned that the last chapters of Acts really could be called the sufferings of Paul. And now you see why, okay? Even in our text, he, he just nearly escapes death at a, at, at a sinking ship. And now he gets bit by a poisonous viper. Okay, this guy has... Trouble following him everywhere. <laughs> in and out of mock trials, escaping angry mobs with his life, um, shipbound en route for, for Rome as a prisoner to get a fair trial because he couldn't get one back home, and now he's shipwrecked on an island. So this guy's got some trouble following. You got that kind of trouble following you this morning, right? The little snowstorm, right? But that wasn't that bad, right? Now, <laughs> now he's greeted by what we think might be some hostile natives. 
The, the word of God calls them islanders. But we learn from the text that they get a little bit of reprieve from their persecution because the Bible says that these islanders are unusually kind to them. So now we're setting up the stage for this people of peace, right? They're unusually kind to Paul and the passengers on the ship. Instead of stripping them down, taking all their stuff, robbing them blind, they actually help them. As they're trying to warm up, wet from their swim, you say they're in the Mediterranean, it must be beautiful and, and lovely and warm, and, uh, and we want to go there on a cruise. But the time of year, it would have been about 50 degrees, windy. They had just jumped into a cold ocean, so they're cold. They're not freezing to death, but they're very uncomfortable. They're very cold. So they say, okay, let's get a fire going. Paul starts get a fi getting a fire going. One of the, one of the um, sticks he picks up looks like a stick, but it's actually a poisonous snake, a viper. Are you serious? <laughs> Imagine this. One commentary I read said, there are some snakes that when they get cold, they kind of, they kind of stiffen up, and it's quite common, actually, when you're building a fire and you see a pile of sticks to grab it, thinking it's a stick and it's actually a snake. But anyway, be careful. You know, you Boy Scouts, it might be a, a, a viper you're grabbing on there. But Paul's suddenly bit by a viper. He just escapes death at sea. Now he gets bit by a poisonous snake. It's like the gods are at, this is what the natives think. The gods are after you, dude. You know, like, what did you do? <laughs> um, and, it's, and, and have you ever been in a place in life where you just nearly escape, I guess, metaphorical death or maybe actual death, only to be blindsided by some other really incredible trial, completely, seemingly unrelated? And you wonder, God, why are you doing this to me? What's going on? I don't know if you've ever heard of Betty Ann Waters. How many people have heard of Betty Ann Waters? This is a really interesting story. Well, she, I think, still is a server at Aiden's Pub in Bristol. You guys know Aiden's? Aiden's Pub in Bristol, right down the road, okay? Really great cheeseburgers, by the way. Go have some lunch. Um, <laughs> but some of her life, um, if you don't know who that is, some of her life is portrayed in the movie Conviction, um, starring Hilary Swank. I don't know if you guys ever seen that. Does that make, ring a bell? Not a very popular movie, but it's actually a very good movie. It's, it's worth watching. Um, so, so, some, so, like I said, some of her life is portrayed in this movie Conviction by um, starring Hilary Swank. Um, Betty Ann Waters' brother, Kenny, was accused, basically this is like the plot of the movie, and this is what happened to her in real life. Her brother, Kenny, was accused of a crime that he didn't commit, and he served 18 years in prison before being exonerated and released. Imagine that, getting accused of a crime you didn't commit, getting locked up for 18 years for it. <clears throat> Well, Betty was a server at a restaurant at the time um, with a high school equivalen equivalency. Didn't even graduate high school when, when her brother was sentenced to this. And when, so when he was sentenced, she took on the task herself to go to college, then to get a law degree. She reopened her case when she got his case after she got her degree. She proved him innocent. She defended him and got him released after 18 years of prison. Isn't that incredible? Like, an amazing story of love and devotion and faithfulness and commitment. Um, what, what an incredible story. What, what most people don't know about this, and this is where it becomes really tragic, months after Kenny was released, months after he was released from prison, he fell to his death. Imagine that. Imagine what you just might, if you're Betty, what you might go through in your mind, right? One, just 18 years of unjust 
of, of an unjust sentence in prison and then to be released and to fall to your death. It's very similar to this. Like, a lot of people, I think, in this world would judge, like, wow, he must have been a really bad guy. Right? Like, if you're kind of superstitious like that. It's no different here. Here is Paul escaping death from shipwreck only to immediately be bitten by a poisonous viper. Over and over again, Paul, Paul is just the object of great trial, hostility, and danger. And why? we got to ask that question. Excuse me. I still got a cold. And you know, when you get a cold, you get like that little dry, dry mouthedness thing going on there. You know, so. <clears throat> so why? What, what's going on? If I'm, if I'm Paul, I'm God, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? We all know that life at times can lead us to unplanned trouble. But Paul... Paul had chosen this life. Paul was a brilliant, prosperous teacher of the law. He was a Pharisee. That would have meant that he would have been okay financially and relatively comfortable and safe in his job. Okay, so he had a safe desk job that made him some money. Okay? But he leaves it to follow Christ, who told him in Luke 21, you remember we read this last week, you will be betrayed by parents, Brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. Paul, you want to follow me? Christian brother and sister, you want to follow Jesus? Here's what is going to happen to us. Not all of the time, but some of the time. You will be betrayed by parents, by brothers, by sisters, by relatives, by friends. They will even put some of you to death, and everyone will hate you because of me. So Paul's choosing this life of danger, this life of trial, this life of hostility. Paul met danger, expected insult. Why? And this is our first point. Because he was boldly pursuing to live his life on mission. Because the person who was without Christ, that did not know Christ, that was left in their sin, was more important to him than snakes hanging from his arm. Because if there is a life to come, and if there is a holy God that will judge sin, and that Jesus Christ is the only escape from that wrath, we have a job to do, don't we? He was uncompromising in his obedience to the command of Christ, who we just heard a moment ago, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. He knew that to be a Christian meant that he was to take up the cross of Christ in his relentless pursuit of those lost around him. And friends, we need, to in, we need to inspire ourselves again. A passion for those people lost around us. Not to be obnoxious jerks. You know, we can do that in our evangelism. So we need to learn how to be kind, yet bold in our evangelism. Paul said, for everyone who calls on the name of the... Paul said this himself. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one who they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And you say, oh, good, thank you. That's why we pay you. You got the mic in your hand. Go preach, preach on, brother. Do the job for us. He's not talking to pastors. He's talking to us, to Christians. We are the proclaimers. That's all preach means, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all preachers in that respect, okay? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. 
You see, that's why he's on that ship that went down. That's why, that's why he's in a, a position of danger where snakes actually have the opportunity to bite you. <laughs> Paul knew he was convinced that to be a Christian, to be like Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, means that we have to fish for men. We have to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who need it. The normal means that God rescues people from their rebellion, their sin towards him, it's not through visions or dreams in the night. Okay? It's, it's not through some kind of revelation of a, a squirrel that God supernaturally makes talk. It's by sending his people to proclaim the gospel. That's very clear in Romans chapter 10, which we just read. Friend, we, we will never see, friends, we will never see anyone around us come to faith in Jesus unless we boldly pursue them with the gospel. We cannot sit around and be quiet. We have to proclaim. We have to proclaim. There's no other way that God normally brings people to faith in Jesus Christ but that way. So do we have that urgency in us to make his name known. And I get it. I know that sometimes we can just kind of wimp out. We have an opportunity. We don't say anything, you know, and, and where we should have, right? So we, learn, we don't guilt ourselves. We learn from those things. We get up and determine the next day. Maybe go find that guy go, or that gal that you should have talked to. Just go hunt them down and say, okay, I'm going to find you because I, I should have said something and I didn't. So I'm, I'm finding you at your address and I'm knocking on your door, right? <laughs> We must joyfully, in the process, accept the trouble, insult, and danger that is the natural consequence of this kind of life. Because if we're grumpy that people don't like us, if we're insecure because, you know, they didn't accept our message, they didn't believe, and we start get, getting a little bit kind of insecure about it, and we, and we don't have joy in the process, it's going to kill us. It's going to stop our evangelistic efforts. We're not going to look for that person of peace anymore. We have to continue on. What did Jesus say? Right in the verse, in Luke 10, what did he say to do when someone rejects you? Move on. Go to the next town. <laughs> right? It doesn't say, well, you know, maybe you said the gospel wrong. Maybe you aren't smart enough for this. It doesn't say any of that. It just says, move on. Go to the next town. Just keep going. Because God is preparing that person of peace for us. So we joyfully, we joyfully need to do this. There's no way to encounter people of peace unless we wake up daily praying to God for the opportunity to share the gospel. Do you pray for that? God, help me to come across someone today to share the gospel with. Right? It's costly. This is a costly life too, by the way. Living like this as a church, living like this individually is going to cost us. It's going to cost us our finances. It's going to cost us our time. It might cost us our reputation at times. People might think we're weird. <laughs> right? I know. And I know that that's hard. So that's why we need this kingdom wavelength. Like if we recognize that the outcome, the joy set before us, is that the kingdom is going to be populated with people who have accepted the, the gospel of Jesus Christ through our bold proclamation so we need to get on that kingdom wavelength don't we we need to ask give me that heart god to be on your kingdom wavelength 
No Christian in their right mind thinks for a moment that the call to follow Jesus isn't going to cost them something. If you ever just start reading the New Testament, you know it's going to be costly. It's going to cost you something. Our time, our possessions, our reputations, whatever. Our health, our life. But as we sacrifice as a church to follow Christ, sacrifice of these things, we do it, like I said, for the joy set before us. That as we faithfully spread the gospel, whether it takes two or 20 years, or whether we reach 10 or 10,000 people, that the gospel will be spread, the kingdom will come. And that's where we have to joyfully accept whatever measure God gives to us. You know, some, sometimes God uses a church in incredible ways. And they're big, and they start 100 churches, and they're worldwide. And other times, it's slower. Is any less greater? To God, I think, when you look, when, 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 when you look back, um, from when we get on the other side of eternity, you remember that parable with the talents? One, three, and ten talents. God didn't rebuke the, the, the faithful three who didn't get as much as the ten, right? What he rebuked is ap- apathy. Not doing anything. That's what he rebuked. The Christian life, the mission life, is a life of a bold and sacrificial pursuit, and it's essential in reaching our person of peace. Now let's look at the paradigm shift, number two. A paradigm shift. To find a person of peace, you have to shift their paradigms. You have to challenge their worldviews. Okay? Let me explain to you this in a moment. Oftentimes, people come to faith in Jesus because they're first drawn by some remarkable paradigm shift that they see in your life. The way that you live your life is changing the, the, the way they think about life in general. See? It's put on display. And it's, it's put on display with Paul. For these islanders, and we can see this very clearly happening to Paul, these islanders, Paul was bitten by this viper after having escaped death, clearly, in conclusion, this guy's a murderer. You see that? That was their logic. That was their reason. The goddess justice is after you, and she's not going to let you live because you're a criminal. That was their conclusion. But after having escaped death at sea, and walking away unharmed from the viper, they, both, they saw both of these things, these islanders. They saw him escape uh, that, that, that wreck of, at sea. And then they saw him escape the, the bite of the viper. They think, now, not, is, you're not a murderer, but you're innocent. Not only are you innocent, but you must be a god. This, they com- complete 180. They changed their mind completely about Paul. They're waiting for him to swell up and die. From the, the, they're all watching him. Imagine this. You get bit by like a cobra or something, and we're all just looking at you. Like, how long is it going to take? And then nothing happens. And, the, the, and all the islanders, what's going on? Who is this man? He must be a god. They see him as innocent and divine. Tradition tells us that Paul begins to make Christ known to them. It doesn't say that in our passage. We learn this from church history. That, that, Christ be, that Paul begins to make the gospel known to them. And this is no doubt the occasion that he used to shift their worldview, their paradigms. He would have explained to the, the natives, no, I'm not a god. I'm not a god at all. Let me explain this to you. Not only that, you think that because I escaped death twice that I'm innocent. So not only am I not god, but you think I'm innocent, I'm not but there's someone who is. 
See what I mean? He's, trying, he's starting to, to radically challenge their worldview. You're right and you're wrong. You're right, I am innocent, but I'm also guilty at the same time. My guilt should cause my own death. And I am guilty, but I am innocent at the same time. So what's going on? This is contradictory. What's happening here? I am guilty, but I'm also innocent. I'm guilty, but someone took the viper's bite for me. You see? And because of that, no ship and no viper can ever end me. You see, that's the gospel. I am guilty, but someone took the death I deserve. They took that bite. They took this, the, sea, the sea wreck. So I am guilty, but I'm innocent. I've been declared innocent. They had presumed that a man that can escape the death of a snake must surely be divine and innocent. And you know what? They were right. They were absolutely right. But there's only, what they were wrong about is that there was only one person who ever pulled that off. And it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was innocent and righteous, and he escaped death. Didn't he? But how does a person escape this death if you're guilty? Where do we stand? Justice isn't going to allow it. Fate's not going to allow guilty people to live. See, that's their paradigm. Today, Eastern cultures, you know, highly value this kind of paradigm, like this justice and honor. So forgiveness is a tough concept if you go out east, believe it or not. But <clears throat> justice and honor is, is highly... Western culture, it's the complete opposite. We value love and grace and forgiveness and God accepts everybody, right? Isn't that, that, that's kind of our MO out west. But Christianity is both. Christianity, Christianity is uncompromising with both. God is absolutely loving, but he's absolutely just at the same time. His justice would never allow him to just simply overlook sin and pretend like it never happened. But because of his great love, he rescues us through Christ. See? So his justice and his love are both satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. That is a radical paradigm shift because we think as humans, most religion, it's, it's, it's one or the other. It's either we're all innocent and there's nothing wrong with any of us, and we're all pretty good and great, or we're all in big trouble. And Christianity doesn't know that kind of religion. The death of Christ is the payment for God's awful anger and wrath towards our sin. Our sin matters to God. He doesn't look over it. He doesn't pretend it didn't happen. It cost him the, son, the life of his own son. Modern psychology, um, in modern psychology, the underlying philosophy is that we're all kind of relatively good, and because of abuse, we end up bent and broken. Does that make sense? So if, you, if you're messed up, you weren't born that way. This messed up world made you that way. So you're a product of environment, right? You see that? It's not nature. You know, the nature versus nurture concept. That's, you are nurtured in that direction. It's not your nature. If that's true, the goal then, right, is our own, to, to, to access our own inner goodness. What is it? What makes us worth something? Uh, how do I identify ourselves as intrinsically valuable? And you say, oh, that sounds kind of nice. Like, what's my good qualities? And I'll just kind of shine through those. But friends, don't you realize that you're just creating another law? that's going to crush you? 
you, in order to do any of this, you still end up a law that you'll fail. You'll end up under a law that you will fail, that you will break. So to prove, and let me explain, to prove our worth, our, intrins- our intrinsic natural worth, we normally highlight our good qualities, some virtue, some ethic, work ethic, or skill. And these become our positive self-esteem, our innate goodness. But when we fail them, what happens? It crushes us. When, when we think maybe we're not as, we meet someone who is a better worker than us, more virtuous than us, more beautiful than us. It breaks us. We stand condemned. We fall short of it, and we know it. Even our own law. We break our own laws. The viper bites, and it kills us. See? The viper bites down, and we shrink with it. We blow up. But the gospel provides a more honest and liberating view of our condition. We all fall short of God's glory. We all fall short of even our own laws, let alone God's laws. But Jesus, having lived up to that law, credits us with his heroic and perfectly right life and takes all of our broken sin. So any Christian who really has the gospel driven down deep in their hearts, you really know the gospel, that you are completely wretched and unconditionally loved at the same time and rescued, and you deserve none of it. I I was listening to that same John Piper message. He was actually talking a little bit about this, this pastor from like the 1700s. And he said, you will never know joy until you are completely humiliated. <laughs> That's nothing, nothing like we're taught today. But what he's saying is, you will never know joy until you really understand your own humiliation with respect to the holiness of God and what he actually rescued you from. That's how much God values you. The more you, in Christianity, the more you're humiliated, the more you appreciate the extravagant love of Jesus Christ. And it frees you. Frees you. So any Christian who's really got that gospel driven down deep in their hearts, they're going to fling the vipers away. You know, your, your mother-in-law, your mom, your father, your father-in-law, they insult you. You're able to do that. Why? Because your self-esteem, your worth is not founded in the opinions of your family, the approval of your family, your own personal successes. But in, so any, what normally would cause other people to shrink down and die doesn't do that to you. You actually are able to shake it off, and people wonder, what's going on with that person? They just lost their job. They just got in a shipwreck. They just had a snake bite them, and they're hap- they have joy. What's going on? You see, their world, you're challenging their worldview. Let me introduce you to why I don't need your applause. The person who is applauding me right now is bigger than yours. <laughs> That's what happens. The gospel-filled Christian is not shaken by insults or failures, by trouble or trial or injury. Our personal esteem and our value comes not from the approval or applause from our brothers or sisters, but from what God has declared us in spite of us. Our hope is in Christ, not ourselves. So when the Christian endures the bite of the viper, the rejection of a friend, the insult of a coworker, the world watches and waits for us to swell up and sink to our deaths, but when we don't, we, they wonder what sort of gods we are. 
the gospel driven in our hearts, we remain unmoved and unafraid. People wonder what sort of power we might have. And it's in that wonder where we grab that person in peace. We got them. See? See why this is important? The way you live your life, the gospel, your, your real genuine faith in the gospel, you see why it's important? Because it leads others to believe in your Jesus. That's why your spiritual life is the most important thing on this earth. I talk about mission, and we got to get on mission. You know, but before that, you know, the, the, the God's honest truth is every single one of us needs to pray every day. Every day. I, I fail in that. I admit that to you, but I'm challenging myself this year is I'm praying every day because if I don't, I'm not going to nurture. The gospel isn't going to be driven deep down in my heart. And if it's not when the viper bites, I'm going to swell up like everybody else and everyone's just going to walk away. You see? We need to have a lot of snakes hanging from our arms, right? Figuratively. <laughs> okay, we're not that kind of church. Um, <laughs> When the gospel's driven home, we remain unmoved, unafraid. People wonder. Their paradigms are shifting, their worldviews are shifting, and we nab that person in peace. Um, I want to mention a third, very quickly, and vital component of <clears throat> discovering this person of peace. Um, so let's go to number three, the selfless compassion that Paul displays here. We likewise have to have selfless compassion. Paul was able to really identify, if you notice this, basic human needs. He starts healing everybody. Did you see that? You remember that? He, he's identifying basic human needs. So he's not just saying, hey, look how amazing I am. Vipers are hanging from my arms and I didn't die. Now please give me money. <laughs> right? Like, let's take up an offering. He doesn't do that. He says, okay, who can I help? Who can I serve? What basic human needs can I satisfy? People were sick, he healed them. See that? It was this radical and selfless charity that took over the world too, by the way. If Christians weren't like this, Christianity never would have went anywhere. It, it would have died uh, 2,000 years ago with the apostles. It just would have, okay? But Christians, all throughout church history, unfortunately, we've had blips where we haven't been like this. But all throughout church history, Christians have been um, gracious and generous. And the challenge is for us to do the same if we want to be powerfully effective in our communities. Um, Christians counterculturally, by the way, the early church, counterculturally, were caring not just for the, their own people, but for everybody. So at the time, if you were Roman, you cared for the Roman poor. That's it. The rest of the world's poor, that's their problem. That's, that's how people viewed it. The Roman emperor Julian remarked, the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. That's what he says. So in other words... Rome wasn't even caring for its own sick and poor, and the Christians were. Isn't that incredible? That was so countercultural, that was so radical, that no one had ever seen that happen at the time. Christians were taking care of everybody. Friends, enemies, Christians, Jews, whatever you were. If you were in trouble, they'd help you. Not only were they impartial in their charity, but they even took on the infirmities of the pagans. Now, now consider this, if you, if you haven't heard this before. Around A.D. 250 to 266, 5,000 people a day were dying from the Cyprian plague. It was smallpox in Europe. Isn't that incredible? 5,000 people a day were dying from this. It's said that the sick were abandoned in the streets. No one wanted to touch them. Everyone was getting sick and dying. So when someone got sick, throw them in the street. Get them out of here. 
They weren't burying the bodies. The sick were abandoned in the streets, the dead left unburied. In Carthage, the Christians were blamed for the disease, and the emperor ordered Christians to sacrifice to their gods to end it. They had basically said, Christians are atheists, right? Did you know this? Christians are atheists because they only believe in one God. We believe in the whole, you know, panoply of gods. We believe in a million, right? They only believe in one, so they were called atheists. And you know, the gods are mad at us. This is what they were saying. The gods are angry. They sent this plague. So the, they forced the Christians to repent of their Christianity and sacrifice to the gods. When they didn't, one of the greatest uh, persecutions in church history came to be. They started killing Christians because they believed that their gods were angry for this new religion that had crept into the Roman life. But anyway, Carthage's, Carthage's bishop, imagine this. In spite of this, Carthage's bishop, the pastor, gets up and says, okay, they're persecuting us. We're taking care of everybody. They're persecuting us. Here's what we're going to do. He encouraged Christians to take care of the sick and dying. They buried the dead, and they risked their own lives and even died themselves taking care of the ill. Isn't that incredible? So they would take in the, the, the people that had smallpox. They would get it themselves because they were close. They would both die. Showing the compassionate love of Jesus Christ. And how can someone do that? The only power that we have to live like that is to really believe that there's a better city. That there is perfect health. That there is untold joy at the right hand of Jesus Christ. That our little blip of a life is, is really the dream. But the real life, on the other side, this will seem like it never even happened. See, do you believe in that city? Can you take on the illnesses of a person, of a neighbor? See, that's what we need to do. We need to take on their poverty, take on their illness, be generous to them. Amen? That's that selfless compassion that changed the world. And friend, if we're gonna, that's, that's what helped Paul in this instant, in Acts 28, get the attention of his person of peace. And we're going to see that right now. And this is the, the, the third and final point, or the fourth, rather, transformation. Now, you might sort of wonder why Paul's on Malta after a shipwreck, okay? Why is he getting bit by a snake? All of this, like, seemingly arbitrary difficulty on Paul's predetermined path to Rome, okay? God told Paul in Ephesus, I'm sending you to Rome. Okay, so what's all these pit stops? Why not just beam me up, Scotty? Just get me there. What is all this for? Is it possible... That God brought the storm, saved everyone on the ship, brought the viper, saved Paul from its venom to demonstrate the Lord's bold pursuit, a paradigm-shifting gospel, and selfless compassion to Publius. Is it possible that on the way to Rome, God wanted Publius because he loved him? You see, that'll change your life, friend. If you recognize, if you see the tribulation of your life as, as having a very specific purpose, you're going to start seeing all the Publiuses around you. All the people that don't know Jesus. That's going to transform the way that you handle persecution when it comes, because you're going to see it as an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel, the other kingdom. That's why that, and that's why it's giving you joy in this city, that, this earthly city that brings so much trouble. 
Our text reads, um, just be reminded here of our person of peace. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and he showed us generous hospitality. See, what did Jesus say? When they receive you, bless him, heal them, right? So this guy is receiving them. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. Okay, what's the consequence of this? Okay, this is all nice. It doesn't tell us a word about the gospel in this story. It just says Paul healed some people, then they left, and everyone was nice. Well, we learn from tradition and from church history that Publius accepted the gospel, so apparently Paul had shared the gospel with him, and of course we've seen that over and over again. That's what Paul always did. So just because it's not mentioned in the text doesn't mean it didn't happen, okay? So tradition tells us that, that Publius was the Roman procurator of Malta. He was, a he was in a position of power, and he was the first Christian convert in Malta. And from that time onward, a Christian community developed in Malta, influencing the future worldview and culture of the islanders. They had become Christian, in other words. Publius, the person of peace, accepted Christ and used his influence on that island to see many more people saved. That's why the ship went down. That's why the viper latched on. That's why all of that stuff happened. Because God loved the Maltese people. Period. And you wonder, you know, maybe my life and some of its trouble is happening because there's a people watching. Maybe that's the case. Publius was the first bishop of Malta and he died a martyr's death. Isn't that incredible? One man, a person of peace, was saved years to come. Many of those islands were rescued, put their repentant faith in Jesus Christ. And it seems to me that God allowed Paul's suffering and calm resolve to be put on display just because he loved them that much, those islanders. Amen? And, and Christian friend, your life is on display, and this is what I'll close with. Our lives are on display. Something is happening that is so important that we need to wake up to. Right? Our husbands, our wives, our children, our friends, our neighbors. There's a person of peace in there looking at you. And we need, to be aware, we need to have a vision for them, a mission for them. And we need to be people of, we need to be gospel people to develop what that looks like, what that means. To grow into all the fullness of Christ. That's what scripture says, is the call to every Christian. What does that mean for you? That gospel driven down deep in our heart so that people who are not yet Christians have a window into our lives because we're boldly pursuing them. We're praying for them. We're showing them how the gospel challenges their worldviews. We're being selflessly generous to them. They're able to see us toss serpents from our arms and unharmed and maintaining a calm and happy resolve. When you're injured, when you're insulted, when you're overworked, when you're harassed, you know, though all those snakes that hang from us sometimes? We're able to toss them away, not swell up and die, and have the joy of the gospel in our hearts. And maybe you're going through it right now just for that one person who doesn't know Christ yet because they're watching you and they need what you have. Amen? Amen. I think it's quite possible 
that God brings us suffering to impress upon the hearts of people around us, watching us of their own need for Jesus Christ. So, bold pursuit. Let's have a bold pursuit. Let's remember the paradigm-shifting power of the gospel. Amen? Let's remember to have selfless compassion. Who's your person of peace? I want to encourage you, challenge you, to start writing some names down. Start praying for them. And you say, I don't have any names. Well, that's probably not true, but let's just say hypothetically it is true. Ask God for some. Start praying for that. Start praying that God shores you up with the gospel, the power of the gospel, what, the strength that you need from it. Ask God for that. And then start asking God to, to bring you to people. Write some names down. Pray for those names. That God brings us a person of peace. If you just close your eyes and pray with me. God, I thank you so much, Lord, for this wonderful, um, this wonderful morning. We got to remember your great passion and your bold pursuit of lost people. We thank you that you use the tragedies of our life to show people that we don't shrink up and die, that we still have joy and compassion and generosity, even in the midst of them. So God, I pray, Lord, that you would use us, bring us a person of peace. God, bring us people of peace. God, as we want to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, let us consider our neighbors around us, whether we live in Warren or Fall River or Taunton, whatever it might be. God, I pray, Lord, that we would be diligent in prayer, that we would nurture our own soul with the gospel every day in prayer and in your word. I pray, Lord God, that we would have a burden and a vision for lost people, that we would be fishers of men. And if you don't know Christ this morning, would you just come and trust in the one who took your death? If you believe in him and repent of your sins, he is the one that will take your death. Your sin, your failure, because he loves you. Be welcomed. Be welcomed to a life where you never have to suffer any sort of curse of death anymore, ever again. And you can shake off those vipers too. Trust in Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh, the Son of God, sent by the Father out of the Father's extravagant love for you, his enemy, because of our sin. He died a death on a cross, and if you put your trust in him, you'll be saved. And if you're putting your trust in Christ right now and you're turning from your sin, can I just ask you, come talk to me, and we'll talk about what that's going to mean for you. I'd encourage you to get baptized. That, is the, the, that has been the historic way that the church has demonstrated people with new faith to be baptized, to proclaim their faith publicly. So if that's you, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Please talk to me after church, and I would love to rejoice with you. God, we love you so much, and we thank you um, for this church. We thank you for each member of this church, their value, your love for them. I pray, Lord, that we would go off today in this cold, snowy day and just be reminded of the, the city to come, the heavenly city, where there is no death or crying or curse. Oh, God, I pray, Lord, that bless our, bring us people of peace even this day. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.